0: Let's give our worship team just a big round. I mean, they, they brought it today. They bring it every Sunday. They're incredible. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, We've done had church in all three of our services this Sunday that that doesn't always happen Uh, We always have church at 1130 now don't get me wrong We always have in church at 1130, but i'm not so sure uh, It always happens in all three, but this has been a really really great day Hey before we get started in the content uh, Let me speak to all of you that if someone asks you uh, What is your church and you would answer that question by saying the creek church? So if you consider the creek church your church uh, And if you only plan on attending one more time for the next 12 months, I want to tell you the sunday Day that you cannot miss, that you shouldn't miss. And if you only come one Sunday the rest of the year, then you should come this Sunday right here. Write it down, put it in your calendar, put it on your notebook, write it on your wife's forehead, whatever you need to do so that you don't forget it. August 27th, all right? Not next weekend, but the weekend after next. We're not gonna penalize you if you come every Sunday, but if you're only planning on coming one more Sunday, Be sure to be here August 27th. Now, let me tell you, we're not going to broadcast that service. It's not going to be online. So, it's either be here or be square. And uh, so, make sure you're here because we're talking about some really important things. Trust me, you're going to want to be here. If you're not here, you're going to hear about it secondhand, thirdhand, and, and you'll regret it. It's going to be a great day. So make sure you're here August 27. Tell somebody that you know that considers this church their church. And if you haven't seen them in a while, say, hey, you definitely wanna be there August 27 because it's gonna be a great day, a day you don't want to miss, all right? So make sure you're here. Now, uh, last week we kicked off this new series that we're calling Revive. And if you weren't here, uh, basically we launched the series by saying that in our lives, uh, we have faith and our faith has seasons. And our faith in these seasons that our faith goes through and you've experienced them, and I've experienced them that there are seasons when in our faith, we feel close to God, right? You've been there. And then there are seasons when we feel distant from God or we feel far away from God. And and some of us have been there. There are seasons when we are excited about our faith, when we're passionate about our faith. And then there are seasons when we are discouraged in our faith. Uh, There are seasons when our faith feels fresh, it feels new, it feels powerful, it feels relevant. And then there are seasons uh, when our faith Feels a bit stale, it feels not so powerful, and it feels a bit irrelevant. And it's in those seasons when we feel like we're far from God, and it's in those seasons when we feel like we're discouraged in our faith, and it's in those seasons when our faith feels a bit stale that we need to refocus so that we can be renewed and so that we can be revived. And and here's the truth for a lot of you, and I know you, I know you better than you think I know you because I know me, and because I know you, I know some things about you, that there are some of you here, it has been a long time since you have felt the presence of God. It's been a long time since you sensed the presence of God. And sometimes you go through the motion and you sing the songs and you're here, but down there in your heart of hearts, you know it's been a long time since you really experienced God in a meaningful, personal, powerful way. And perhaps for you, it is time to refocus in order to be renewed and revived. For some of you, you were hurt. You were hurt at a church that you used to go to, you were hurt maybe at this church, or maybe you were hurt by a Christian, and you decided that you were never going to be in church again, and you decided that you were never going to step back in the doors of a church, but here you are today, and you're as shocked as anybody, and maybe it's your first time, and you're still trying to figure out, is this a church or not, but trust me, it is a church, and you're shocked about it, but here you are because somebody hurt you once upon a time, and someone disappointed you, and someone didn't call, and someone didn't check, and someone didn't meet your expectations. And because of it, you checked out. And maybe for you, it's time to be renewed and revived so that you can plug back in. For some of you here, you used to be engaged. That is that you used to give, but you don't give anymore. You used to serve, but you don't serve anymore. Something happened. Someone happened and you decided to disconnect and you decided to disengage and you and your faith have suffered for it. You're not where you used to be and you know it and you're a bit miserable because of it. And perhaps you need to be renewed and revived. Some of you, maybe a few of you, you're living a lifestyle right now that you know you shouldn't live. You know that you're making choices that you shouldn't make that you know that you're making unhealthy and unwise choices that you even suspect is undermining the future, that you even desire for yourself. And you can't believe it's happened, and you don't even have a good explanation for it. But you know what's going on, and you sense somewhere in there in your heart that you need to be renewed and revived yourself. And then there's a lot of us, that once upon a time, we can think of a time and place where we were closer to God than what we are right now. And for us, perhaps, we need to be renewed and Revived, renewed and revived. And here's some encouragement for you, though. Everyone, everybody say everyone. Everyone experiences seasons when they need their faith renewed and revived. There's nothing wrong with you. You're human. There's an ebb and flow, there's seasonal aspects to our faith. Sometimes the pendulum's swinging in, sometimes it's swinging out. So there's nothing wrong with you. You're human. But everybody has seasons when their faith needs to be renewed and revived. And perhaps that's you, perhaps that is me, and we need to respond to it. And that's why we're doing this series, because our hearts are prone to wonder. And the more that we understand that and the more that we pay attention to that, the less likely it is to happen. We have faith that is, you know, quite likely, and it has a tendency and a propensity to drift, to drift away from our Heavenly Father. We have a tendency to get, you know, distracted by things that are not most important. And we talked about it last week that when we get distracted by these things, we focus on these things. And in time, we even give our heart to these things that we shouldn't give our heart to. And so this series is all about you know being reminded That the key is, it's also the difficult thing, it's also the most important thing, is to keep our faith focused on what our faith needs to be focused on so that we don't get distracted, so that we don't drift into waters that ultimately leads to pain and regret. And the key to it all is focusing in the right direction. And that's what we talked about last week. And we said this is extremely practical, and this is where we left off. These are the verses in the book of Hebrews. And this is what the writer said. In order for you not to allow your heart to wander in order for me not to let my faith to drift. He said, let us run with perseverance. The race marked out before us fixing our eyes on Jesus that is that we ought to be spending more time thinking about Jesus than what we've been thinking about Jesus. We ought to spend more time talking about Jesus than what we've been talking about Jesus. We ought to spend more time reading about Jesus and talking to Jesus than what we've been reading and talking to Jesus about. We need to be more consumed with Jesus than what we have been. We need to love Jesus more than what we have. He says we need to fix our eyes. That's where we need to focus. Not to get distracted by these other things and then focus on the other things and give our heart to the other things. He says, but fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith. And then he says, consider him to give deep thought, serious thought to the one who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In other words, if you don't want your heart to wander, if you don't want your faith to drift, then you fix your eyes on Jesus. You consider him, and you consider his cross, and you consider what he did, and then you consider it the fact that he did it for you. And when you consider that, and you fix your eyes on Jesus, it inspires us, and it motivates us to be the men and women that God has called us to be, to run the race that he has called us to run. But today, we're going to take things a step further, because you can't fix your eyes on Jesus And you can't consider his cross and consider what he did without also considering who he did it for. You can't focus on Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus, look to the cross and consider what he did without also considering whom he did it for. Now, we know that he did it for us, but it's bigger than us. That Jesus, we've heard this all of our lives, that when Jesus died on the cross, that he died for the world. And whenever we fix our eyes on Jesus, we focus on Jesus, we consider what he went through. We also think about the people that he did that for. And when we think about the people that he did that for, it changes our perspective. Matter of fact, it is life-changing. Because here's what that begins to mean. It means that you go through life understanding that every person every person that you will ever look eyeball to eyeball with is a person that God looked at and said, that is a person worth my son dying for. And when you begin to see people through that filter, when you begin to think of people in those terms, it changes the way that you see people because all of a sudden you understand that everybody you're eyeball to eyeball with, anybody who's ever on the other end of the phone, anybody that you ever interact with is a person That God loves and Jesus considered worth dying for. And that is an extremely big deal because the cross, when we focus on Jesus and what he did for us on the cross, the cross brings us face to face with what is at the epicenter of God's heart. The cross reminds us what is God's priorities and God's values. It reminds us what God is passionate about because the cross brings us face to face with the core, the epicenter of God's heart. And when we look at the cross, we are reminded of what Jesus did, but we are reminded also of the people that he did it for. And we're reminded that the thing that God is most interested in are the people that are far from him. That God loves those that don't love Him. That God loves those, even if they have assigned themselves the position of being God's enemy. That God loves everyone and God died for everyone. And whenever we see any of those ones, we are reminded this is a person that God sent his son to die for. And that every person on the planet, listen to me, every person on the planet, it doesn't matter whether they're a president, a dictator, a congressman, a citizen, doesn't matter if they're middle class, poverty, doesn't matter if they're part of the 1%. That is a person. It doesn't matter what label they go by or what color of skin they may have or what ethnicity they have. It does not matter. That is a person that Jesus considered worth dying for. Because the point is, you can't fix your eyes on Jesus and consider what he did without also considering who he did it for. He did it for you and he did it for me. He did it for us, but he also did it for the entire world. Now, that seems so elementary, but I'm telling you, I forget this, and you forget this. We get distracted when it comes to this. We get distracted, and that's the reason we talk to people the way that we talk to people. That's the reason we get frustrated with people the way we get frustrated. Some of us, that's the reason you know we're lying to people the way that we're lying to people. That's the reason we take advantage. That's the reason we do all of these things. We were rude, we were a jerk. You know, all of those things that sometimes we can be guilty of doing to people. It is because we got distracted. We didn't fix our eyes on Jesus, and when we didn't fix our eyes on Jesus, we forgot that that person is a person that Jesus considered worth dying for. And we forget that this is at the heart of our Savior. This is at the heart of our Heavenly Father. It always has been. We forget that at the very beginning, Jesus said words like this. You've heard this before. For God so loved the, what? Talk to me. The world. world the world. God didn't think in terms of nationalities and tribes and ethnicities. God didn't see boundaries so much between nations. Jesus came and he died for the world. For God so loved the world. There were no exceptions. There were no exemptions. It didn't matter if you were from Asia. It didn't matter if you were from North Korea. It didn't matter if you were from Africa. It didn't matter if you were from North America or South America. It didn't matter if you were from the North Pole or the South Pole or any island in between. You were a person that God loved and Jesus considered worth dying for. That Jesus died for the world because God loved the world. And he tried to tell us this over and over again. That this is my heart. This is what is at the epicenter of your Heavenly Father's heart. That's the reason he said... Let me tell you about your heavenly father. And then he would tell the story of the prodigal son. And then he left home and he made a mess. He didn't even try to help himself. He couldn't help himself. He was arrogant, he was selfish. He was no good for anything. He was dirty, he was nasty, he was all of those things. But the father never got angry with him. No, God's heart is for those that are lost, for those that are far away. That God's heart beats for those who are far from God. And God has his deepest sense of joy when those far from God come back home. Because Jesus wanted us to know what was at the heart of his heart and what was at the center of his father's heart. And so he waited until after his death and after his resurrection when he gave his last words to his disciples before he ascended back into heaven. And when he spoke his last words, he spoke his last words to punctuate Everything that he had said before. And Jesus understood the power of last words, and the reason that you save last words for the last is because that's the thing that you want them to remember most. And in Jesus' last words, he's essentially saying to his followers, I want my heart to be your heart. And he's basically saying to the church, I want my heart to be the heart of the church. And so you, you know these words. These are the last words of Jesus that he spoke to his disciples. He says, therefore go and make disciples of who? All the nations. No exceptions, no exemptions. There's nobody over there that you shouldn't love and there's nobody over there that you shouldn't care about. I want you to understand what the win is. I want you to understand what the purpose of this thing is. And this is Jesus. Jesus could have said anything that he wanted to say right then. He could have said, I want you to go have some humdinger church services. I want you to go have some of the best Bible studies you've ever had. I just want you to just go love and do all that kind of stuff. It's awesome. But no, he said, the point of the church is to go make disciples of all the nations. Now, I know you love to sing, and singing's good, but singing is not the point of the church. And I know you love a good sermon. You barely seldom ever get one, but when you get one, you love it. But it's not the point of the church to have a sermon. The point is not buildings, and the point isn't programs. Even though we will continue to leverage those things for all we can, they're not bad, but they're not the point. Jesus said, the point is, I want you to go. I want you to know this when you get up and go to work tomorrow, that your point Your purpose is to go make disciples. I want you to understand when you go sit in class tomorrow. I want you to understand when you go to the baseball field. I want you to understand when you're at the soccer field. I want you to understand when you're at the academic match. I want you to understand when you're out there at the supermarket and you're intertwining with strangers. I want you to understand the point of being a follower of Jesus is to go and make disciples of all people. And you will never meet a person. No matter what they look like, no matter how they talk, no matter what they've been through, no matter what their appearance is, no matter what stereotype you give them upon first meeting them, you will never meet a person, I will never meet a person that is not a person that Jesus considered worth dying for. Imagine if we got up every day like that, how that changes the game. Luke, he said it a different way. He he recorded these same words, and he said that Jesus looked at his followers and said, I want you to go to Jerusalem, and when you go to Jerusalem, you're gonna receive power from heaven, you're gonna be given the Holy Spirit. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses. Now again, Jesus is Jesus and he could have said anything he wanted to. He could have plugged the word worshipers in there. He could have plugged the word cheerleaders in there, fans in there. He could have said any of those things, but he said, I want you to go be my witnesses. I want you to tell people my story, what I did and who I did it for, what I did and who I did it for. I want you to be my witnesses. Where, Jesus? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. No exceptions, no exemptions. Everybody is a person that Jesus considered worth dying for. And here's why Jesus saved these words for last. Jesus wanted to make sure that what he was willing to give his life for would be what his followers would be willing to give their lives to. The reason that he said it over and over and over again and he saved it to the very end, he wanted to make sure that what he was willing to give his life for that you, me, the church would be willing to give our lives to because you can't fix your eyes on Jesus and consider what he went through on the cross without considering who he did it for and when you consider who he did it for, you have to consider that what he gave his life for is something worth us giving our lives, the rest of our lives, the best of our lives to. So Jesus spoke those words. And then he ascended back into heaven to sit at the right hand of God, the father, 120. Of them go to Jerusalem and they occupy a place called the upper room, and I think it's the most intriguing, you know, situation to envision or to imagine how it happened because we know that the eleven disciples, the eleven apostles, were there minus, you know, uh, minus Judas because he, you know, he was Judas, and, and Judas is not there, but the eleven are there, and then Mary, the mother of Jesus, she would have been there, and perhaps Lazarus. I mean, think about this: perhaps Lazarus was there in the upper room that Jesus had raised from the dead, and if Lazarus was there, maybe Mary and Martha, his. Two- sisters were there. Maybe the woman in John chapter 8, the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery and they brought her to Jesus and Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Maybe she was there. Maybe the woman that poured the oil over top the head of Jesus, the prostitute that washed his feet with her hair, maybe she was there in the upper room. Maybe Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night and had a conversation with him, who also partnered up with Joseph of Arimathea to help bury the body of Jesus after he died on the cross. Perhaps he was there. And the list goes on and on. But here's 120 of them that have so much diversity. And perhaps the only thing the 120 had in common was Jesus. And this was the same group of people that were afraid just days earlier. Many of the disciples went into hiding because they were afraid that they were gonna be the next ones arrested and crucified. So here they are in the upper room because Jesus promised them power. He promised them the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you grew up in churches where they talked a lot about the Holy Spirit. And that's great. Some of you came out of churches where they hardly ever talked about the Holy Spirit and that's unfortunate. But you need to understand that when Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit to his believers, to his followers, he says, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit to you. And when I send the Holy Spirit to you, I'm sending the Holy Spirit to you to help you fulfill the mission that I've called you to. That ultimately God gave us the Holy Spirit so that he could be with us, so that he could help us, but just not to be a better version of ourselves. It's bigger than just us. That he gave us the Holy Spirit in order so that we could fulfill the mission. Matter of fact, you can think about it like in these terms. That Jesus sent the Holy Spirit and it wasn't for us insiders as much as it was the outsiders. That Jesus sent the Holy Spirit so that we could focus in on what was most important. To focus in on the mission. To go and make disciples. To start in Judea. Then Samaria. Then the ends of the earth after we leave Jerusalem. And so that's where they went. And so 120 of them began to pray and they began to seek God. And then out of nowhere, the book of Acts says that there was a sound and the whole place was shaken. And the Holy Spirit of God descended and just miraculous supernatural things began to take place. And then you have Peter. Peter, who had denied Jesus three times and who had been afraid of a middle school girl just weeks earlier. Peter, he looks out there outside the upper room and hears all of these people from all of these nations that have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Pentecost. And all of a sudden he sees this God-sized opportunity. He sees an opportunity to do what Jesus had asked him to do. He saw an opportunity for him to do what Jesus had commanded him to do, to be a witness, to be a teller, to go and make disciples. And so he stood up on the day of Pentecost and he looks into the faces of the crowd. And also in the crowd that day were the faces of the very men that had crucified Jesus weeks earlier. Not their sons, not their descendants, not their cousins, but the very men that had the power that crucified Jesus. The very same men that had the power to crucify Peter. But here he is. He saw this opportunity. The Spirit of God made him bold. And he stood up and he preached. And he says, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you have rejected, God has raised up to be both Lord and Christ. You crucified him, but God has raised him from the dead. And he was bold and he took a risk because he understood what the point was. He understood that the point wasn't to stay in the upper room and pray and pray and pray and get a feeling and feel good about each other and just to love on each other. He understood that the point was to go and make disciples. He understood that the point was to go be a witness. And he understood that risk is the cost of opportunity. That every time there's an opportunity, it will present a cost. And the cost often comes in the form of risk. And so Peter stood up and 3,000 people joined the church. 3,000 people became followers of Jesus. So do not tell me that God does not like mega churches because the very first church was a mega church. The very first church was not like cheers. Everybody didn't know each other's name. There were 3,120 in the very first church. Matter of fact, they had a little wood plaque out there outside the walls and they would put on that little wood plaque, attendance today, 3,120. And when it said offering, We gave everything, because that's what it says they did. Attendance last Sunday? Ah, there wasn't a last Sunday. This is like our first. And then in a few days after that, it bumps up to over 5,000. And they're known for how they love each other and they're known for their generosity and they're known for their joy. And it says in the history of the church that we call the book of Acts, and the Lord added to their number daily, those who were being saved. And all of a sudden, Jesus's words, when he said upon this rock, I'm gonna build my church and not even the gates of death will prevail against it is fulfilled. And this movement called the church, this movement begins to move. And it begins to move so much that now all of a sudden there's thousands of people and everybody's talking about Jesus. Everybody's talking about Jesus that died and the one that was buried and now the one that has been raised from the dead. And now all over again, 2.0, the temple, the authorities at the temple are perturbed. They're irritated, they're fearful, they're wondering, is this the end of Judaism? Is this the end of the temple? What are we gonna do? We thought we dealt with this Jesus stuff. We crucified him, but now his crazy followers are saying, that he's been raised from the dead. What are we gonna do about this? And so they began to exude pressure on the followers of Jesus. They even arrested Peter and John at the temple because they healed a man and then they preached and it caused an uproar. And so there, there's been a little tit for tat. There's been a little animosity. There, there, there's been this little subtle war going on between the temple that it's waging against this new movement called the church. But it was nothing too serious. But five years into the story, five years after Pentecost, as the church continues to meet and the church continues to grow in Jerusalem. Five years in, something happens. We are introduced to a man that many of you've heard about, some of you haven't. His name was Saul of Tarsus. And this man, Saul of Tarsus, was loyal to the temple. He was a zealot for Judaism. He, He was a Jewish zealot, that was his faith. And he was a Jewish scholar. And his greatest commitment was to stop out this new movement called Christianity. He wanted to use everything within his power to stop this movement known as the Galileans or the Nazarenes that were going about that he believed sharing blasphemy against God. So Saul of Tarsus had decided to stop out this movement. And when we're first introduced to him, there is a death in the church. And the first martyr of the church is a young deacon by the name of Stephen who was stoned to death. And this is where Saul enters the story. It says, and Saul approved of their killing him, that's Stephen, And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church. Now, I want you to understand that on that day, it didn't feel like the blessings of God falling. On that particular day, it didn't feel like the favor of God was upon them. This was tough. This was difficult. This was persecution. This was pressure. There was a lot of weight from without bearing in on the walls of the church. But here's what was happening. Even in the midst of what they felt like was something really bad, God, was making it into something really good. Because even in the midst of a really bad situation, God may be working it for good. And he was even in real time at this particular moment. And it was not only gonna be for the church's good, but it was gonna be for those outside of the church's good. And it says, on that day, there was a persecution that broke out in Jerusalem. And listen to this. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, I want you to think about this. There's thousands of people in the church of Jerusalem. We're five years into the church and the church has yet to leave Jerusalem. The church is comfortable in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, we love each other, we take care of each other, we sing, we praise, we study the scriptures together. But in five years, they have not left Jerusalem. And this is complete conjecture, I just wonder. I wonder if the reason God allowed persecution I wonder if the reason that God allowed the pressure of the Roman and both the temple authorities to weigh down on them, I wonder if it wasn't to get them moving, that they'd gotten too comfortable in Jerusalem, that they had stayed in Jerusalem too long, that they had forgotten that Jesus said, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, that they forgot that he said, I want you to go to the ends of the earth. But on that day, They scattered to Judea and Samaria, just like Jesus said that they were to do because he got them moving. And what was confined to Jerusalem is now in Judea and Samaria and churches in Judea and Samaria are just like the church back in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden again, the church is growing. The church in Judea, the church in Samaria, the church in Jerusalem, the church has a stirring and things are moving. The moving is moving again. And then a year later, a year after the persecution begins, something big happens. And it happened on the road to Damascus. And on the road to Damascus, Saul of Tarsus, he has his papers intact. He's got arrest warrants intact. He's going to Damascus to arrest, imprison, and consent to the death of other Jesus followers. But on the road to Damascus, Saul of Tarsus met Jesus. And Jesus appeared to him. And Saul became a follower of Jesus. Jesus. There was a bright light on the road to Damascus and Saul was blinded by it. But God told him to go to Damascus because in Damascus, he was gonna send a man by the name of Ananias to him and Ananias was gonna pray for him. And when Ananias would pray for him, the scales would fall off of his eyes and he would be able to see. And so he went to Damascus to wait on Ananias. Meanwhile, over here in Ananias' house, he has a vision and God says, Ananias, I need you to go to Damascus and find a man by the name of Saul. He's blind and I want you to pray for him that he may get his sight back. And Ananias is like, (laughs) oh God, you're a trickster. What are you up to? I've heard about this guy. This guy kills people like me. Why should I go? And then God says to Ananias, because I have chosen him. I have chosen him to be a messenger to the Gentiles, to their kings and to the Jewish world so Ananias goes and he finds Saul. He prays for him and he gains his sight. And Saul, type A, he knows what Jesus has called him to do. Immediately, the first thing he does is he goes to the synagogue and he begins to preach to the Jewish people. And he says, hey, everything we've read about in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. You need to turn to Jesus and receive him as your Messiah. And he caused such an uproar that they tried to kill him in Damascus. Then the disciples in Damascus decided to send him south to Jerusalem. When he goes to Jerusalem, he takes a guy by the name of Barnabas with him. And when Barnabas gets to Jerusalem, I imagine that he said, "Saw, I need you to just hang outside the door for just a moment. And Barnabas goes in because he's the guy of encouragement. He, he's always optimistic. He's always a people person. And Barnabas, I imagine walks in to Peter and the 11, like the leadership of the church, like the leaders of the church. And he walks in and he says, guys, I wanna tell you about a guy who came a follower of Jesus, you're not going to believe it. I mean, it's kind of like a celebrity. And you've heard about him. I know you've heard about him. His his name is Saul. And they're like, Saul who? Saul of Tarsus. And then walks Saul into the meeting. And they're at first reluctant to believe. And they think maybe he's a mole. And maybe he's just trying to infiltrate. But finally, they come to the conclusion, this man has truly experienced life change. And so Saul begins to preach again in Jerusalem. And the same thing that happened in Damascus happens in Jerusalem. And they try to kill Saul in Jerusalem. And so the disciples, they take Saul and they take him to Caesarea by the sea. And at Caesarea by the sea, they gather Saul and they say, Okay, Saul, we're going to do you a favor. We're going to do us a favor. The best thing that we can think about is you just need to disappear. You need to disappear for a while and that's going to be good for you. It's going to be good for me. You need to go into witness protection. So we are going to send you all the way to Tarsus. And we're just going to let you hang out there for a while. And that's what they did. And things kind of calmed down. And this is what the book of Acts says. It says, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time in peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. It was a good time. It was good times. There was peace. And persecution is not so hot. And I have to ask when I read that, why not? What changed? What changed from the church demanding the immediate attention and action of the temple authorities to now? Everything's kind of peaceful. Is it possible that they've gotten comfortable? Is it possible that they've backed down? Is it possible that they've backed off? Is it possible that they've let up from fulfilling the mission? Because here's the church, it's in Jerusalem, it's in Judea, it's in Galilee, it's in Samaria. It was a good time. Numbers are increasing. So everybody feels like things are going good, but there's no new territory being taken. The church is not expanding geographically. It's like everybody was taking a break. And so it gives us a little bit more information. It says, now those who had been scattered by the persecution, we talked about that, that broke out when Stephen was killed, they traveled as far. And then this gives us a scope of where the church was at this time. As far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, which was a little island about 100 miles off the coast of Israel, and Antioch, and Antioch was a major city. It was the third largest city of the Roman empire. And it was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And he says, spreading among the Jews only. And this is such a big deal because up into this moment, the Jesus movement is a Jewish movement. Up into this moment, all the followers of Jesus primarily are Jewish. So this is a primarily Jewish movement. And now what we're gonna find is that the church in Antioch is about to be born. And this is a big deal. This is such a big deal. It says, some of them, However, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch. And this is when this church is going to be birthed. And they began to speak to Greeks. And this is a big deal because, again, up until this moment, it had only been a Jewish movement. But now Gentiles are being told the good news about Jesus. And this is why this is so important because this is where we come into the story. We are Gentiles. We are not Jewish, the majority of us. Now, Antioch, to give you a little, little historical background of Antioch, Antioch, which again was 300 miles north of Jerusalem, about five miles outside of Antioch were what were called the groves of Daphne. And there at the groves of Daphne, there were two temples, one to Artemis and one to Apollos. And it was a wicked city. It was an amoral city. There was was just so much wickedness in Antioch. Matter of fact, the writers in Rome who loved to write satire... They wrote in the first century about Antioch, and here's what they said. They said that Rome was only wicked because of the waters that flowed out of Antioch, flowed all the way to Rome, 1,400 miles away. Basically, what they were saying is that Antioch was far more wicked than Rome ever thought about being. And the reason that Rome was the way that Rome was was because of what was going on in Antioch. So this was an amoral, immoral city. And here now, all of a sudden, Gentiles are hearing the good news of what Jesus did and that the fact that he had done it for them. And then it says the Lord, his hand was with them and a great number of the people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, here we are eight years after Pentecost, seven to eight years after Pentecost and the church has only expanded 300 miles north and 80 miles south. But now all of a sudden the waters are beginning to stir. Gentiles are coming into the church to be a part of the church along with Jewish people. And Jewish people had been taught all of their life that Gentiles were no better than a dog. Matter of fact, they were more worthless than a dog. Jews were trained from the time that they were born to hate Gentiles, not to interact with Gentiles, not to talk to them and not to touch them. And now all of a sudden, this Jesus movement is now both Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus. And this is amazing, people can't believe this. This is two people groups that do not associate with each other. The apostles all the way down in Jerusalem, 300 miles south, hear about this. So they call Barnabas, they say, Barn, come here. We want you to go to Antioch and find out what in the world is happening up there. And so Barnabas goes to Antioch. And it says that when he gets there, he is glad. I imagine he was blown away as he sees Jewish and Gentile brothers and sisters as part of the church, two groups of people who have nothing else in common other than Jesus. And so Barnabas, while he's there at Antioch, he decides, well, I just might as well go on to Tarsus, which was just a little journey from there. And he goes and he finds Saul and he says, Saul, hey, I wanna bring you back down to Antioch, because right, i to tell you what's going on down there. There is revival that has broken out at Antioch. Jewish and Gentiles, I mean, it is unbelievable. So we're gonna go back to Antioch. And so Barnabas and Saul, or Paul that we would call him later, will spend the next year in Antioch with the church. And this is what the book of Acts says about those disciples in Antioch. It says the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. In other words, this was not meant as a compliment. This was meant by an insult, as an insult by outsiders. The people at Antioch, the pagans of Antioch, they would say things like this. That Jesus that you're always talking about, you people remind us of him. Imagine that. Those stories and those commands and those little things that you said Jesus said, you people actually do that. You know what you are? You're like like little Jesuses. You're like little versions of Jesuses all over the city. You're like little bitty Christ. Now, when is the last time you have heard that indictment against the church in the 20 and 21st century? They were first called Christians at Antioch, perhaps because of the unity in diversity, that Jews and Gentiles were together, men and women were together, masters and slaves were together. And what the church of Antioch reminds the church of today is this, that Jesus has always been about tearing down walls and not building them. Jesus has never seen in terms of nations and boundaries. Jesus has always thought in terms of this is the world. These are people I love. These are the ones that I care enough to die for. And the church has always been about tearing down racial walls, gender discrimination walls, and any other kind of wall that we we have tried to put in between us and other people, whether they're labels, ethnicity, the color of skin, gender, it doesn't matter. The church from the very beginning has always been about tearing them down and bringing people together. People that have nothing else in common other than Jesus. Because one day, I've got news for the world. And I've got news for all of Charlottesville. One day. One day, all the world will bow down before a Middle Eastern Jewish carpenter and will call him Lord. And he is about bringing the world together by faith. A group of people that believe that he died, that he was buried, and he was raised from the dead. Now, that was all just free. Take it, do whatever you want to with it. But be back on the 27th. All right. Here at Antioch, they hear about some things going on in Jerusalem. Jerusalem church, extremely poor. So at Antioch, they take an offering. They're going to send it down to the church of Jerusalem. So they elect Paul and Barnabas to take the offering to Jerusalem. And, and here's the rest of the story. It says, when Barnabas and Saul finished their mission, that is taking the offering down to Jerusalem, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John also called Mark. And this is where I, I bring us to today. And this is where I need you to lean in. This, this is so good. It says, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers and while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. And here they are at this church where revival has been raring, where revival has been encountered and Jewish and Gentile believers are coming together and they're generous to other churches in places like Jerusalem, that in the midst of all of that, there's a group of believers who decide to pause, who decided to pull aside who decided to stop what was the normal routine in order to pray and to fast. Perhaps it was the reason, perhaps the reason they did that was because they remembered what Jesus said, that Jesus said, when you fast, that Jesus expected there would be seasons when we would actually fast and abstain from certain things. Perhaps they thought about what Jesus said to his original disciples one day that couldn't perform a particular miracle. And he said, this type of miracle is only gonna take place through prayer and fasting. And I have to wonder, why were they praying? Why were they fasting? I think that they were expecting something more. I think they realized that they were 18 years out from Pentecost, 18 years since Peter stood up and preached that message. And here they are no further than 300 miles north Nearly 20 years later, and the church has not gone to the world. It has not gone to the nations. It has gone 300 miles north and 80 miles south. And perhaps they wanted to get refocused, renewed, revived, to be faithful and true to what Jesus had called them to do. Perhaps they believed that there was something greater. There was something more for them. There was something more for other people. And so they prayed, and they fasted, maybe because they felt like things had stalled bit and they were ready for the next big move of God and it says while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting the Holy Spirit said because God spoke they made themselves available and God spoke and he said set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them and the work to which he had called them to do was to take the message of Jesus to the Gentiles their kings and Jews All around the world. And it says, so after they had fasted and after they had prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now, we can't overstate how big of a deal this is. We can't understand how much hung in the balance in this moment. We can't understand how high the stakes were at this moment. Because in this moment, the message of Jesus had not moved west. The message of Jesus had not moved any further than 300 miles north of Jerusalem. At this moment, none of Paul's letters have been written. That means the majority of the New Testament hung in the balance at that particular moment. That means the West hung in the balance at that moment. And it means that you and I hung in the balance in that moment. They had no idea how high the stakes were when they prayed and they fasted. There had been no westward expansion, no letters of Paul. And what happened at Antioch, this revival of them sending them off reminds us that revival doesn't benefit the insider as much as the outsider. We love to think of revival in terms of insider. Boy, it's gonna help us have church, it's gonna help us pray, and it will do all of those things. But ultimately, we find in the history of the church that when there is true revival, it just does not benefit the insiders. Matter of fact, it benefits the outsiders more. We know Jesus, we walk with Jesus, we follow him, but there are people who don't. And when we get stirred, when we get renewed, when we get revived, it not only affects insiders, but it also affects the outsiders. So they sent them off, and so here we are. This is a picture of it. What started down here in Jerusalem went 300 miles north to Antioch. And from Antioch, Paul's gonna take a ship. He's gonna sail 100 miles off the coast to Cyprus. From Cyprus, he's gonna preach, and he's gonna take a boat, and he's gonna go north, and he's gonna to go to Pisidian, Antioch. And then he's gonna to travel to a city by the name of Iconium. And from Iconium, he's gonna to go to a place called Lystra. And in Lystra, Paul is gonna be stoned and he's gonna be left for dead outside the city. But he didn't give up. And he got back up and he dusted himself off and he went to a place called Derby and he preached the gospel to those people. Then he circled back around, went to the same cities and he came back to Antioch. A little while later, he and his team are gonna go out on a second journey. This time, <laughs> This time, he's going to go to a place as far as Troas on the coast of Asia Minor. And up there at the coast of Asia Minor, he's got a plan, but God's not going to let his plan be what Paul ultimately does. And so Paul has a vision of a man over across the sea in a place called Macedonia who says, would you come over here? We need your help. Come to us. And so Paul changed his plans. He took a boat. He sailed across the sea to a place called Macedonia. And that was the first time the gospel ever reached the continent of Europe. Once he landed in Macedonia, he went to cities like Philippi and from Philippi to Thessalonica and from Thessalonica to Athens and from Athens to Corinth and from Corinth to Ephesus where he would stay three years and at the end of those three years he would look at the elders there in Ephesus and he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. He said, Paul, they'll kill you in Jerusalem. And he said, I'm willing to die. So he goes back to where it all started, back to Jerusalem. And when he goes back, he meets the half-brother of Jesus, James, and he tells him about everything that's been happening the last few years. And then he preaches at the temple, and they seize him. And they nearly beat him to death until the Roman guards intervene. And he's arrested. He appeals his case to the Roman authorities, and he's shipped off to Caesarea-by-the-Sea, where he speaks at a trial before Felix and Festus and King Agrippa. And then he appeals to the highest authority of the empire, to Caesar himself, and he takes a boat from Jerusalem to Rome. And there in the prison at Rome, he will write letters that we have today in our New Testament. When he wrote letters back to the churches that he started all around the Mediterranean rim of the Roman Empire. Paul was allowed to be released from prison and he was placed under house arrest. And this is how the book of Acts ends. This is what it says. For two whole years, Paul stayed there under house arrest in his own rented house. He welcomed all who came to him and he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. And what had started all the way down here in Jerusalem and had gone as far as Antioch and even over here into Europe ended up at the ends of the earth the most important city in the world, the heart of the very Roman empire, Rome itself. And 20 years after that first day when he and Barnabas were sent out from Antioch, he takes the gospel to Rome. And there in Rome, there were Christians in every level of society And Paul under house arrest would tell him about Jesus. He was released from house arrest for a short while and Nero would take the throne as emperor of the Roman empire. Nero needed an enemy so he burnt down Rome and he blamed it on the Christians and thus he inaugurated a persecution against Christians that they had never known and they were burnt alive at the stake and they were drowned and they were ran through with a spear, They were beheaded. They were fed wild animals. Paul was arrested once again and thrown in a Roman prison. And it would be from that prison that he would write a letter in our New Testament called 2 Timothy. And he would write these words, the time of my death is at hand, but I have fought a good fight and I have finished my race and I have kept the faith. And henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, and not only for me, but for all of those who would love his appearing. And then one morning he heard the footsteps of the Praetorium guard as they came to a cell and they escorted Paul outside the city. And outside the city of Rome in a place we're not even sure where it took place, They executed the Apostle Paul. But not before he'd taken the gospel to the empire and to Rome and essentially the world. And what Paul did had its beginnings in Antioch. And we all owe a debt of gratitude to that church for when they prayed and fasted, God spoke. And it reminds us, that revival, it brings a burden, it brings a vision, and it brings action. Because when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we can't help but also fix our hearts on those far from Jesus. So here's my question. What will we be willing to do? What will we be willing to give? And where will we be willing to go in order to win those? far from God? Will we give our lives to what Jesus was willing to give his life for? Father, I pray that you'd speak to us. I pray that we wouldn't get distracted. I pray that we'd fix our eyes on you. Be reminded of what you have done and the people that you did it for. God, some of us, we've gotten distracted. And we don't invite people like we once did. We don't share our faith like we once did. Matter of fact, we go to work and we go out in the community and we hardly ever think about it. I pray that you would help us refocus. That when we see Jesus and what he did on the cross, that we are reminded that he did it for the world. So Father, I believe some of us need to rededicate our lives to what it means to be in a follower of Jesus, to be in a teller of his story, to be in a witness, to tell people this is what he did and you're the reason that he did it, that we would love and we would win those far from God, that we wouldn't be a people marked by hate or marked by anger, but we would be a people that they would accuse us of having the audacity to be like Jesus.